Hello and welcome to Footy Time. It is the 25th of July 2022. My name is Johnny Raff and we're not going to talk about footy this week. What movies are out at the moment? What's on TV at the moment? I'm of course just joking. It was an amazing round of footy. Maybe not as amazing for some people as it was for others, but it was truly an amazing round of football and we are going to talk about it. Well, we're down to the last four games of the season after this, and it is getting real nervy. Who's going to blink first? There really is no other way this season is going other than down to the wire, I'm afraid. Once round 23 is played, who will be in front? Who will miss out? And that's all there is to it. Who will be in the spots that they desire? And then we have the final series itself to deal with. So it's going to be an amazing two months ahead. There's going to be a lot of heartache and a lot of nerves, a lot of excitement as well. It's not all negative, but yeah, it's not going to be a relaxing time. Let's just say that. What else can we lead off with other than one of the most amazing Sunday afternoons at the MCG I've seen for a while. Not that I was at the MCG, but watched it on TV. Um, the Collingwood and Essendon game was just one that you couldn't help but watch, even if you were neutral. Um, the Pies were well on top early before Essendon clawed their way back into it and put themselves into a winning position until Jamie Elliott broke their hearts with a goal after the siren. Magical. Absolutely magical. Um, it had everything this game. Momentum swings, uh, Josh Dacos' potential goal of the year, older stars shining, and younger stars coming of age. It really did feel like a finals atmosphere, even though uh, Essendon aren't going to feature in the finals this year, but it definitely felt like a ding-dong game of football, really. Um, to, I still can't get through my head what happened. I haven't actually seen the last quarter again yet, but I wouldn't mind doing that. But, yeah, I'm actually I'm going to go off, a bit off script here. I usually have my points written out for these kinds of things, but I'm just going to go with my memory for this one. So, I think Collingwood got up by about, I'd say, 30-odd points. Uh, I'm not going to say... I'd say it was about five goals early on. And then Essendon slowly clawed their way back. The Bombers ended up getting a lead of about 20 points in the last quarter. Um, Yeah, they had several shots on goal and a a very good chances to extend that lead as well. Uh, But there was just this feeling that when they missed those three shots in a row, I think Stringer missed one. I'm not sure if it was Harry Jones. The other uh, was another one, another big miss. They just had several decent opportunities, and when they did that, there was just this feeling that the game was still wide open, to me anyway. And it was. The Dons lost this as much as Collingwood won it in the end. They overused the handball, and just killed their own momentum at times. There were some absolutely sensational passages of play from the Bombers in the third and fourth quarter that really should have ended up in goals, but there was just that one too many handballs, and they fluff the chance, you know, they'd miss it or whatever, it was turned over, and it just went the other way, and those moments, I think if you bury a goal in those moments, you 
you know, you win the psychological battle for that moment and then it accumulates over time and you end up winning the game. They really, really shot themselves in the foot, not just with those misses, but with those decisions that they made to just overuse that handball. And then we came to the penultimate part of the game. So the Pies had clawed themselves back to one point, the difference. And I, I can't remember who got it out on the wing, but the Bombers did win a 50-50 ball, and they ended up getting into the 50, where Jeremy Howe mopped it up and was trying to take it out of the 50, but Harry Jones with a fantastic tackle, holding the ball one minute and 10 seconds on the clock. This, that is game, Hendricks, as far as I'm concerned. That is game. You, you just don't lose from that position. <laughs> you really don't. And And I just thought, that's it. Honestly, that's it. He takes his full 30, even if he does miss it. They'll structure it up. They'll shut it down. They won't let any possible easy exits out of that back line for the Pies. They will make the Pies kick down the line to a contest, kill it over the line, maybe another chance, but they would at least force a stoppage and just have to defend again. We know what happened next. Harry Jones kicked from about 40 metres out directly in front. He hooks the kick to the left slightly and hits the post. There is about 48 seconds left on the clock when the Pies get the ball back. And I can't remember exactly who kicked it in. Uh, I'm sure one of uh, our loyal Collingwood fan listeners out there will be very quick to (laughs) remind me of who it was that kicked the ball in. I would say it was... Nick Dacos, but uh, that's just a guess, and I'm not going to say it if I'm not absolutely sure, but whoever it was went very quickly and launched a long kick out to the wing, the, um, the members' wing, uh, to find Trent Bianco in acres of space, completely unmarked. I've seen a few replays of this particular moment. I haven't seen the quarter in full, but I've seen this play a few times now, and Essendon players were literally, as Harry Jones was taking his set shot, they were watching his shot. They were watching his shot go through. And they were expecting it to go through for a goal, I think. Regardless, they were ball watching. And how they couldn't set up defensively for an after-point kick-in, I'll never know. I'll never know. Look, anyway, Bianco since a brilliant long and hard kick into the forward line for Collingwood, which somehow evades two Essendon defenders and ends up in the arms of none other than Jamie Elliott. Unbelievable. If this was my team, I would have flipped my shiz. Elliott goes back from one of the harder pockets to kick from in footy. The siren goes as he's on his run-up. His kick is beautiful. I mean, did any of us really think that this kick wasn't going through from Jamie Elliott? I think in our heart of hearts, we all knew that there was more of a chance that Jamie Elliott was going to dob this kick than miss it. And he did. He got it. And the rest is history. They've done it again. Nine wins in a row. Wow. I don't have a lot more else to say about this because I'm actually really dying to watch... It was, a, it was a very hard one to take yesterday because obviously I didn't want Collingwood to win because of Melbourne's position on the ladder and they're now equal with us and they're into the top four. But thinking about it today, it does make you realise just how much this is the greatest sport in the world. Honestly, 
as Jamie Elliott took that mark, I got goosebumps because I looked at the crowd right behind him in the Olympic stand on the ground level. And you know, there were many Collingwood fans, obviously. And there was this one Collingwood fan, this girl, who you could very clearly see her body language. And she was just throwing her support behind Jamie. I don't know what she said. I would love to guess that it was something like, you know, just just take your time, Jamie, you know, you just take it, you know, you, we're behind you, you know, all, I don't know, I don't want to put words in her mouth, and if you are listening, footytime22 at gmail.com, I'd love to hear from you, but uh, just some words of support, and I just, in that moment, it just reminds me of all those times I've been at the MCG, all those times I've been at the games where there's been just these amazing finishes, and it's just that in that moment, you may be a spectator, but you feel like you're out on the field. I just don't know if there's a sport quite like this in the world that, that allows you to feel like that, that can just take the person right at the back of the bleachers and go, you, you're part of this. You're part of this. She was obviously in the front row, but it's the same concept. Anyway, cold blood through the veins there. And... <laughs> Yeah, they've done it again. They've done it again. They know how to win. We're going to talk a lot more about the Pies and what this means a bit later on. But one of my favourites to reference, H.B. Myers, Mongrel Punt, he said it best. What a goal from one of the best small blokes who plays big the game has ever seen. (laughs) Couldn't have put it better, H.B. Is Hayden Young the pick of the 2019 AFL Draft? Okay, and maybe a little bit of sensationalism here as the 2019 draft is aging quite well and looks to be one of the best draft classes that we had for a while. You've got Matty Rowell, Noah Anderson, who are going to be very good midfielders in this competition. You obviously have Luke Jackson, who could be a major X-factor. You've got Caleb Sarong, Cody Waitman, Mitch Georgiatis, Sam DeConing, and many more who are yet to show us their best stuff as they're all only in their third years. But in my opinion, Frio cleaned up when they took Hayden Young at pick number seven in this draft. Young was easily the best kick in this draft, in my opinion. An excellent reader and interceptor of the play. Great athleticism. He was best on ground on Friday night against the Tigers in the draw. With his amazing tank, he was able to get 31 possessions at 83% disposal efficiency. So we try to stay impartial on this show, obviously, but I do look at this draft from a Melbourne perspective, and I wonder if Melbourne would have been better off taking the Victorian man young instead of the WA guy in Jackson. I think they made the right choice, but obviously the go-home factor has never seemed to be as prevalent as it is now in the game, especially after COVID. We'll see how it goes. It's all about the long run, but geez, I just think in the long run, I feel like Hayden Young is going to be a gem. I just think he's going to give you some really good, consistent footy. Love the way he reads the play. Love the way he—he's just—he's that kind of player that you want. You—you you want that intercepting defender, and he's not going to be tied down to just a defender, I reckon. But he—he he will be a valuable player for the Dockers, and yeah, you just love a player that can kick like that. It'd probably be stupid to not talk about the Friday night game after we just spoke about Hayden Young's best on ground performance. I wasn't actually going to, but there's been so much to talk about this round. <laughs> Enough for two shows. Um, So, this was a very strange game. Uh, no one could really get 
Uh, no one could really get ahead. No one could build up any sort of lead. It was a defensive masterclass from both sides, especially Frio. Uh, they they were sort of um, they were playing a lot of keep ball in the first half, I thought, with Richmond. But eventually the Tigers sort of broke through and kicked a few goals. But uh, there was a lot of the fourth quarter without a goal. As a matter of fact, I feel like the scores were level on about 52 each with about seven minutes left. And there was no score for the rest of the game and a draw. We have to talk about the two chances that Richmond had to snatch this, though. Noah Bolter with that shot from just on the 50. Uh, Jack Rewalt saying to him to take his full 30 seconds, which he did, but he obviously took it a little too literally. Um, The umpire calls play on. Michael Fredericks was right on it and comes in with a brilliant smother. But that all they needed was a point and it didn't happen. And, you know, the ball was cleared, ended up on the wing, out of bounds. Ten seconds left, there was one more stoppage, and the Tigers got it out, and they managed to get it to Noah Cumberland, a very promising up-and-coming forward for the Tigers. And with a few, with I'd say two seconds left, he marks it, and he plays on, and everyone watching was just, probably screaming at the TV, yelling, no, don't do it, and he did it, and the siren went, and he was quite distraught, to say the least, uh, I really feel for this guy, um, I don't know what happened, I can't really comment, I, I don't believe that people don't know exactly how much time there is left, now, I'm not saying they would have known exactly, but I don't ever buy into that garbage that people say oh yeah well for all they know there could have been like two minutes left or something total hogwash i think at that boundary throw in when there were 10 seconds left i think everyone would have known exactly that there was 10 seconds left at very least someone was probably yelling out maybe that there was 30 seconds left i don't think there would have been that much disparity in the time that was left uh you don't often have a lot of runners though out there telling them that stuff but i'm sure there's ways to get the message out there i just don't believe that uh that they wouldn't have known and i I do understand what noah cumberland was trying to do i think sometimes when you play on and you get that closer look or you get that yeah just those uh, those few yards of space a lot of players prefer that but i don't know i haven't seen him enough to know what kind of uh what kind of leg he's got uh whether he would have had the the measure there Easily, I'd say that for for a guy of his size, I, I I would be surprised if he couldn't make the distance from from fifty out, or it probably would have been about fifty, more towards fifty five. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. It's just one of those things that you don't wish on anyone. You do. I mean, the Jay Carts incident last week was bad enough, and he got scrutinised, and this one's just twenty times worse. And you don't want guys to go through that. But with this kind of adversity. There's two ways you can go. You can take the good stuff out of this. You can make this. You can you can let this make you stronger. You can become a better player for it, or you can fold like a wet rag and just go. No, nah, that adversity's killed me. I'm done. No, I'm never the same. Fork in the road for this young man. I really hope he takes the former, but. Yeah, it's kind of a split. It's a 50-50 split on how players react from this. It can be the making of you, or it can be the breaking of you. Yeah, it's it's shocking to say, but that's the reality. 
Um, something I have noticed, and I'm going to talk about this in a second as well. But I don't mind Matt Tabner. I think he's a nice, yeah, he's a nice forward. He has a crack, but uh, I think that he was pretty lackluster on Friday night. And without Rory Lobb, they needed to get something out of Tabner. And yeah, I just saw a guy who, I don't know, once he sort of went up for the marking contest, he just, I don't know, he just felt his job was done. He didn't really do much else other than that. I'm looking at his stats now. And he kicked a goal. He had eight disposals and four marks. But he didn't do much else. He didn't really impact the play much at all, apart from that. Um, there wasn't really that much sort of working to bot out body as opposed to get the ball to ground and stuff like that. I just felt like if he wasn't going to mark it, that was kind of it. And that's disappointing. You need your key forwards to do more than that these days. And without Rory Lobb, they needed to get something out of him. And they also had Griffin Logue, but... Uh, you know, this is something we're going to talk about in a moment with Freire's forward line. But they needed more out of Tabena, in my opinion. So that was disappointing, I thought. Which, by the way, is very out of character for Matt Tabena. He is a hard-working key forward. Uh, he's a guy that's really sort of applied himself, and he's been good this year. I, I don't know if he's hurt or anything like that. Uh, he just didn't bring that work rate to the table on Friday night. So that was, a, that was disappointing. But it's probably fair to say he had a very good opponent. Robbie Tarrant, I think, played his best game for the Richmond Footy Club on Friday night. Tarrant was all over Tabner. And yeah, he was just that that old sort of that old head calmed him down and, and, and yeah, he justified his worth in this game, Robbie Tarrant. I, I was really impressed with him. I think that he should go round again. I reckon. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where the the Richmond uh, back six sits at the moment in terms of development. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, begrudge Robbie having another go at it next year. And lastly, from this game, there were a few things from this game, but unfortunately, Nat Five pinged his hammy again. So another injury. He just hasn't been able to string consistency on the park this year. And recurring hamstring injuries. They are the worst to get back from, I don't know if it's worse than say, well, it's definitely not worse than a knee injury, but uh, say a, you know, a leg break or something, or, you know, a fracture. I don't know. Sometimes just the, the, the mental anguish you get from recurring hamstring injuries and the, the stuff that it does to your mind. And, you know, when you're trying to build it back up and you're trying to go into full sprints, but it's in the back of your mind. Oh, is that going to ping again? Like, it's just, you know, I'm obviously talking from experience here, but it's just a bit of brain candy, I guess. And, yeah, it's going to be hard. It's hard to stay up. He'll stay up. He's a very good, uh, you know, he's got a good head on his shoulders. But that's another three weeks at least for Fife on the sidelines. And they need a fit and firing net Fife, I think, to make a good play at this flag. There is always a place for Fife in this team. Don't be fooled. Um, and they need to find a way to get him in there and featuring. Um, yeah, so a lot a lot from this game. First draw of the season. Yeah, what does it mean? Lots of meaningful segues in this show today. And we're going to talk about Luke Jackson and the Fremantle situation. So, 
it is looking more and more likely that Luke Jackson will be departing Melbourne. And it's looking more and more likely that that destination is going to be Fremantle. You know, it's oh, there's talk that the deal's already done, that the money is in the realm of $750,000 a season or something like that. Frio have put themselves into the premiership window. Remember that this club has never won a premiership in their existence in the AFL. They have a great fan base over there who would love nothing more than to come through and win a flag. So, is this the high-profile move that is going to get the Fremantle Football Club its maiden premiership? I'll just note that my comments that I'm about to make right now are exactly that. Comments being made right now. And right now is when these kinds of business decisions are being made, or over the next few months at least. I've never heard of one business decision in the history of the world that was made with the benefit of hindsight. So if this turns out to be wrong, please don't bombard me with hate mail saying that my comments didn't age well or all sorts of childish stuff like that. I will politely tell you the same thing. Good. I'm glad we got that out of the way. So, there is a glaring issue with Fremantle's team at the moment. Their forward line. They've got Rory Lobb, who has had a great season, and has been their best forward with 30 goals. But he's inconsistent, and possibly the one that they will part with to make way for Luke Jackson. They've then got Matt Tabernard, who, as I said before, has a crack. He's kicked 20 for the season. But do you hang your hopes on someone like this? It becomes a case of, is there an upgrade for this position? You've got a guy who might do the biz, but when you're going for a flag, you need a little bit better than that sometimes. They've got Bailey Banfield, who's been good with 18 goals, but he seems more like a tall mid-forward guy. You know, he's got seven contested marks for the year. That's not going to cut it at the key post. Having said all of this, Frio's small forwards have been excellent. Yeah, you've got Lockie Schultz with 25 goals. You've got Banfield, who I just mentioned. Uh, Michael Frederick with 19. Uh, Sonny Walters with 12. And others who can head up forward and snag one like Collier and Switzowski. I think any team in the comp would love to have Frio's set of small forwards. But long term, you really do need the balance if you want to challenge for a flag. So we look at Luke Jackson. Out of contract and on the market. I'm going to be blunt. Luke Jackson doesn't fix Frio's forward issues. Yes, the kid is still developing. And I know he would be a ruck forward as he has been for Melbourne. But he's mainly been up forward and has kicked 10 goals for the season. He's also had 17 contested marks. That's kind of middle of the road. We know that Luke is an exceptional talent. And offers so much more than just those stats that I've mentioned. But still, I don't see this as a good fit for Fremantle. And while we're at it, Frio only need to look over to Melbourne to see why this won't fix their issues. Melbourne has been without Tom McDonald for nearly half a season now. Don't you think Melbourne's forward issues wouldn't have been such a problem if Luke Jackson was the forward messiah that Frio were making him out to be? Think about it. He's not going to be a full-time ruck because Sean Darcy is excellent. As a matter of fact, I'm now hearing that the acquisition of Jackson could make someone like Sean Darcy tradable. Well, that's quite a bit of faith giving up your starting ruckman in order to pay 800k a season for a new one. 
And if Jackson wants to be a ruck full-time, why would he leave Melbourne to go and sit behind another ruckman? I haven't even talked about Freo's list decisions that they need to make over this year and next year. Alex Pierce has just re-signed. An excellent re-signing. That's a, a very, very good one. Uh, but you've got these guys like Griffin Lowe, Bailey Banfield, James Aish, Blake Akers, Will Brody. They're all out of contract at the end of this year. Luke Ryan, Caleb Sarong, uh, Tucker, Lockie Schultz, Liam Henry, Rory Lobb, all out of contract next year. We've already mentioned Lobb. He may already be going. But these guys are all key parts of Frio's ascent up the ladder this year. You are essentially saying that you're happy to break up some of this amazing list you've worked so hard to assemble by selling the farm to bring in a third-year player who, in all honesty, is not proven as the key forward that they desperately need and might play some time in the ruck? There's so many what-ifs here, and it doesn't add up for me. At this point in time, if I was free, if, if I was a Frio fan, I would be nervy about making a move like this. Yes, he played 15 of the greatest minutes in a grand final. Possibly, I don't know. Possibly in all of all time, I don't know. But the shiny object syndrome here is just laughable. You know, list moves like this can cripple football clubs and become the butt of people's jokes. I, I still wouldn't sleep on a team like West Coast. I wonder what they're up to in all this. Frio could just be a smokescreen. I don't know. But if Luke Jackson comes out and nominates Frio, I would say that in all likelihood, he will end up getting to Frio. I don't know. But that's just my two cents. I don't... I'm not trying to put the moz on or anything, but I just don't see this as being a fix to Frio's forward issues, I'm afraid. I'm not going to spend too long on this, but we're going to talk about the head-eye tackle again. Because people are getting fed up. And it's becoming a joke. I'm literally going to spend about 60 seconds on this. But, yeah, something's got to happen. I don't know what it is, but something has got to happen. Because we're now in a situation where the umpires are second-guessing player behavior. Uh, I don't know if they've been instructed on this, but... uh, the, the incident I'm talking about is the Jack Ginnivan one, where he literally looked like his head was about to be taken off. He was just strangled in that tackle. And look, that's a high tackle. I, I know that Jack has brought this on himself to an extent. And I know that when I said this last week or the week before, that you can get yourself a reputation and then you will start not getting the free kicks. But when it comes to these obvious ones, these like it's safety, just pay the free kick. Seriously, it's a high tackle. Yeah, you know, I know it's a spot decision or whatever. Like you've really got to, you've got to make that assumption in a millisecond. But seriously, the guy like was on the verge of getting seriously hurt there. And yeah, you got to pay that free kick. I think. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say. Not much, but yeah, that's all I got to say. Time for everybody's favorite segment. And there can be no other team to put in focus for the top four part of this segment this week. Pies fans, this is your moment. No one expected it. No one gave you a chance. They all hated you. But 
here you are at the conclusion of round 19, sitting fourth on the AFL ladder. There's been a lot of talk about some of the wins in this nine-game winning streak being slightly fortuitous. Well, as much as I'd love to find reasons to play down this amazing run from the Pies, there is really no point. It's been nothing short of magnificent. And you simply won't win that many in a row by chance. We did talk about this maybe a month ago. How far can the Pies go? They're on an absolute tear at the moment. And when things are going right for them in-game, they just seem to float on air at the moment. When you get this kind of confidence and belief in one another, I do feel that you can package that up and go all the way in a competition like this. Whether it happens or not, that's another story. But the Pies are not just in good form right now. It feels like the planets have aligned a bit and that they're so instinctive and in sync with each other in the way they play. It feels like a higher power is involved at the moment with their gameplay. Um, We've got a month to go. The Pies have Port Adelaide, which they should win, and go 10 wins in a row. They've got Melbourne the following Friday night at the MCG, which should be a barnstormer, and the nerves are already riding high with that one. Uh, Sydney at the SCG the following week, another massive one, and could be another top four shaper. And then finishing off with the old enemy Carlton in round 23 at the G. I think it's important not to get sucked into who you think are the better teams list-wise at this point of the season and who has the best experience in finals or getting to finals. You know, are Collingwood the best list in that top four right now? No, they're not. And they're not by a long shot. But to me, that means nothing when you're seeing what we're seeing right now. It's between the years, and they are playing out of their skin right now. If they believe they can do it, you better believe they can do it. I'm hearing a lot of people saying that the luck will run out soon, or that they won't be a threat in the finals, and they'll probably go out in the first week, and blah, blah, blah. The fact is that you don't know that for sure. And as it stands right now, I'm giving Collingwood a shot against any team in the competition right now. You know, they're playing with a style that gives them plenty of scoring chances in a game. And when you generate scoring chances, you always have a chance to win. Not to mention that they have that dashing back line that is just exiting defensive 50s with ease at the moment and turning defense into attack. Here's the other thing, though, about Collingwood. They have leaders. Calm heads like Scotty Pendlebury, who settle things down when they need to be settled. Steel Sidebottom, who gut runs all day and then hardly ever wastes a possession. Jack Crisp, who's the, the wily dog that never lets you down. Jeremy Howe, who, you know, when you need a defensive saving mark, he's there to take it. Darcy Moore, same thing. Brandon Maynard, they are everywhere. And a lot of those players mentioned have either played in premierships or grand finals. It'll hold them in good stead. We're seeing something special. That's There's no way around it. We're seeing something special brewing with Collingwood. There's no hiding from it, and it is real. Will they go all the way is not what I'm saying, but they've given themselves as good a chance as anyone. And as I said before, it, it's a very... like Teams go on in, teams get good form. That, that, that happens all the time. But this is very, very rare. When you see a team just literally running on top of the ground at the moment and 
they've just they've got this belief in one another. You, you almost trust every guy who is next to you with your life. That's what you know. They've caught lightning in a bottle here, and it's just yeah, it's pretty amazing to see, and it doesn't happen often. Trust me, not to this level, not to this level. But we'll see, we'll see how far it can take them. We'll move on to the top eight, Sneaky, and I've got to go with the Bulldogs again. They have strung together two very impressive wins and are starting to play with that expansive running style and grand ball game that got them to last year's grand final. Wins like Saturday night build belief. I've heard some people say they may have overdone it a little in their celebration. Look, I don't know about that, to be honest. It's up to them as a footy club to take what they want to take out of it. And Geelong at GMHBA next Saturday night. If they knock the cats off, you'd probably say it was a good thing. <laughs> but look, even if they can just produce a very good performance down there and lose in a close one, you then have Frio at home, GWS at home, and then finishing off with Hawthorne somewhere, probably in Tassie. <laughs> um, sorry, I really should have known that. Um, yes, that is in Tassie. But look, I'm not going to get bogged down with um, you know, ladder predictors or that. But I think that three wins with a scalp in there will see the dogs into the eight. You know, two wins might still do it with some results going their way. But the good thing is that they have put themselves well and truly back into the finals frame. No doubt about it. And they're a team that can do some damage if they make it as well. We've seen it. We've seen it. Nearly ran out of time for this one, but I think it's probably fair to just have a little bit of discussion on that particular game on Saturday night between the Bulldogs and the Demons. Um, Again, I don't really have any sort of prepared notes for this one, so I'm just going to say what comes to mind. Uh, the Dogs started all right with two goals on the board, and the Ds clawed back in that first quarter. It was a very entertaining first quarter, and the Ds ended up in front. Six goals, three to four goals straight. Um, they carried on the job in the second quarter. It was a very high-scoring affair. The Dogs found ways to get the goal, and they put a few on the board, but when they were doing it, it seemed that Melbourne had the answers. They, there was a period where the Dogs kicked three in a row in the second quarter, and then Melbourne proceeded to kick three in a row. Uh, they had all the answers, uh, seemingly. But they get to half time, and the score is, I believe, it is 11-5 to 9-2. So I think it was 71-2. How's your maths, John? Uh 56. So it was a 15-point lead at halftime, and you just knew that the second half was going to be really intense. There was going to be more goals in the game. The Dogs were not playing exactly how you would expect their game plan to be carried out. They were they, they were bringing it back in board a lot. They were using a lot of quick ball movement, a lot of chaining through the middle, but, but also noticed that they entered the 50 with some low and hard kicks, which were either two leading forwards, or if they weren't going to be marked, they would get to ground very quickly. There wasn't any hang time on these kicks, not allowing the Melbourne no-fly zone backline, as I call it, 
to chop it off and intercept. Uh, this had very, very good fortune for the dogs, who we know have a very good ground ball game. They're probably one of the best with the ground ball in the competition. And they've got one of the best midfields as well in the comp, who were just going from ground ball contest to ground ball contest. They found a forward uh, that they could rely on in Jamara Ugelhagen. He has come of age, as they say. I was actually getting a bit sick of hearing him say that about him. But he kicked five goals. And I can't remember the last time that a key forward kicked five goals on Melbourne, to be quite honest. Uh, he was sensational, though. He could not miss. And his last goal was sensational. <laughs> uh, Tim English probably played his best game for the Bulldogs, in my opinion. I haven't seen all the Dogs games, but I thought Tim English was absolutely amazing. He smashed Max Gorn and Luke Jackson around the ground. I don't think Gorn was particularly bad, but you know it was more towards a Max Gorn game that we're used to. He's still coming back from that syndesmosis injury, and I don't know how fit he is, but he was more towards his kind of game with eight marks and 25 possessions, so that was, it was quite good. He was just beaten by a better player on the night, and Tim English managed to kick two goals for himself. Uh, they have made a very good decision to sign him for two years. He's going to be one of the better ruckmen in the competition very shortly. Uh, it was very good to see. It was fantastic. They also made sure they didn't kick it to Gorn as much, and you know his contested aerial ability wasn't utilised as much as it could have been, I guess. So Luke Beveridge did his homework on this one. It was a very good plan, and it worked a treat. Uh, but that wasn't the only thing that happened in this game. Uh, Melbourne led by 13 points at the record of time. And I did, as I was watching this game at the ground, I just kind of felt that there were just so many goals in this game and that it felt like we couldn't really rely on that amazing backline as much as we could. No, Jake Lever didn't help. But the ball was coming in so quick and I just wasn't sure how we were going to hang on at times. We, we managed to thwart a few entries in that third quarter and I kind of felt like we might have weathered the storm. But the fourth quarter was literally one of the most nerve-wracking quarters I've seen this year from Melbourne. I was looking at that by that clock so much. And not because I was wanting it to run out, but I just didn't know. I, I kind of had these metrics in my head of where Melbourne needed to be at a certain point in that quarter. I felt we needed to kick at least four goals to win the game in that last quarter. And four goals was actually all we managed for the second half. Uh, I felt there were more goals coming from the dogs, and they came. Now, there's two incidents that we have to talk about. Cosy Pickett, I thought, was decent in the last quarter. He kicked that very good goal early on to put us, I think, 13 points in front. But he also missed a set shot from the boundary. I think he missed everything. And then there was the the real tough one to take when he missed from 35 metres out directly in front. I think had he kicked that, that might have been it. But... He missed that one when the Bulldogs were not missing. <laughs> so he needed that steadier, and it, it just didn't go through. Uh, then there was the amazing mark from Stephen May in the back line. I thought Stephen May had a good game, to be honest. I know there's a little bit of pile on at the moment, but I actually thought he had a decent game. Uh, he kept Josh Bruce very quiet, and he took some nice saving marks in defense. So he made a couple of errors. He did, and one of them was very very pivotal to the outcome of this game. He marks that ball and he goes for the short pass to Petrarca, under hits the kick and Bontempelli takes the mark 
and it wasn't even 15. So Bontempelli reacts quickly, moves it on to Jack McRae. McRae swings on to his left and kicks the goal. So yeah, a real negative part in the game. Uh, for I thought he had a reasonable game. So yeah, it was disappointing. And then the hero, uh, Ryan Garcia, gets free. Uh, I still don't know why. I think Melbourne's defensive efforts in this last five minutes of the game were well below what we've come to expect from this team. They looked like they were out on their feet and there were just there was a lot more space. There was a lot less uh, cohesion with the, the zone and, um, you know, the team being in sync and really just, you know, knowing what their role was at any given time. It didn't look totally in sync. I mean, in my opinion, it was easily Melbourne's worst defensive performance of the year by a, a very long way. Uh, it is the first time that Melbourne's conceded over 100 points for this season. And while it could have been possibly worse with the entries that the Dogs were getting, I just, yeah, there were just more defensive errors here that then you can poke a stick at. <laughs> just things that you would expect Melbourne to to cover just weren't covered. Um, a lot of these things aren't new, though. A lot of these things aren't new. It, it, the question I'm hearing a lot of people say is, have Melbourne been worked out? Well... Well, yes, to an extent, but it's not necessarily a bad thing either. Um, After winning the flag last year, we knew the coaches were going to go to work on Melbourne. There was going to be more film out on Melbourne, and they were going to study it all summer. And that's what these coaches are paid for, to figure out how to beat teams like this. A lot of teams would try certain game plans. We saw earlier in the year with Hawthorne trying to take the game on a bit more, and Mark Ed Langdon on the wing, and things like that. Within So Collingwood do the same thing. Within so... All sorts of teams try different things. They're not all going to try the same thing that they had been doing before. We, look, do you honestly think that they're just going to continue bombing it into the into our back line and you know so we can just chop it off with intercepts? Like this wasn't the case. We knew last year that if there was a chink in the Melbourne backline armor, then it probably was the ground ball. If you could get as much ground ball in the fifty as possible, then that was probably the best way to beat Melbourne as opposed to sending long bombs with hang time into there. That was pretty much the bread and butter. And we've known this for a while. It's not new. So, to an extent, they've been worked out. But th- this was a very well-executed game plan by a-, a good football team. I still think the Bulldogs have a very good list and a very good midfield. And they- there could be a very quick bounce next year uh, back into contention. But, have you know... The, the the key for Melbourne right now is to get back to what they do best. And although they played okay, I thought, on Saturday night, they, they were reasonable, and they were actually reasonable in patches. But I don't think they were... I don't think they were good for long enough, and I don't think there was sustained uh, performance on Saturday night. The facts are that this team relies on defensive pressure, forward 50 pressure, and winning the ball back that way. That is what it's based on. And to see the statistic that Melbourne had zero tackles inside 50, forward 50, all night, is pretty alarming. Pretty alarming. Um, now, you could put it down to fitness, you could put it down to loading, you could put it down to a whole bunch of things. But the dogs were able to just move with ease out of the back line, and it wasn't up to standard for Melbourne when it comes to that. Now, we scored quite well, so that's a plus, definitely. But 
the the thing for Melbourne is they need to get back to what they did best, and that was the defensive pressure game. I don't believe this game plan is flawed. I still think that if Melbourne bring that defensive pressure, the, the game plan stacks up and gives them as good a chance against anyone uh, as as there ever has been. But without that pressure, it's just going to bring Melbourne back to the pack, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, a lot to take out of this game, but the Bulldogs were clearly better on the night. They thoroughly deserved the victory. And, yeah, we'll see how they go from here. I would like to see them play finals. That's all we've got time for on Footy Time this week. Uh, but just one more announcement. Uh, we've had a lot of sad news recently with the passing of some of the great people in this game, and it's with more sadness that I have to say that Billy Pickin, the former Collingwood champ and two-time Copeland Trophy winner, has sadly left us at the age of just 66. Billy had two sons, Marcus, who played for Brisbane and the Bulldogs, and Liam, who you may remember as a star in that 2016 Bulldogs premiership team. Billy was a dashing defender who could turn defence into attack in an instant, much like the Collingwood backline now. And he could take a serious hanger. I know a lot of uh, a lot of Collingwood fans that grew up with him as their idol. Our thoughts are with Billy's family during this hard time. Anyway, thanks for listening. We've got round 20 coming up this week. Uh, yeah, more big games. Hope your team does well. And we'll be back next week to talk about it. Bye for now.